Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I hope everyone had a happy and restful Labor Day. Summer's officially over, and now we head into a fall with plenty of questions about to drop just like leaves falling from trees. I think we'll start getting some answers about the strength of fall travel demand soon. What do you think, Scott McCartney? Well, good to be with you, Ben. And I do think uh, we're going to see some changes in air travel soon. Um, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see what post-pandemic, uh, post-revenge travel, post-everything else fall travel is going to be like, especially as companies are really having a tug of war with their employees over uh, work from home or, or get, getting into the office. So uh, I think it'll all shake out and it'll be very interesting. What I also think, Ben, is that any gloom has been eliminated by the Zozobra. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico right now, and the city burned a 50-foot-tall effigy of old man gloom, the Zozobra, on Friday night. This was the 99th year of the burning of the Zozobra, and Ben, I put some of my own worries in the Zozobra so they would be burned and eliminated. So nothing but blue skies ahead for us all. Sounds great, Scott. I wish I could have put some of mine in there. <laughs> well, I made it too tall. I, I put one or two for you and some others in as well. <laughs> no, thank you. And interesting, how does the Zozobra compare with Burning Man? Well, the Zozobra people, and this is such a, a citywide effort. It was actually broadcast statewide by the local ABC affiliate, now run by the Kiwanis Club, and they market it as the original Burning Man. But, but it, it was not muddy. It was, people did not get trapped. Um, and it, it's, it, it's very much a family event here. Um, there's a whole sort of carnival atmosphere uh, and, and stage production that leads to the culmination. And there's a theme to the Zozobra. They've been doing decades, and this was, it's next year is the 100th anniversary of the Zozobra. Uh, this year, they were honoring the, the decade of the aughts. Uh, and, and with that, uh, a Harry Potter uh, theme, the Zozobra was dressed as Voldemort. Uh, <laughs> and, and so... Uh, the evil Voldemort uh, went up in flames and there was fireworks and it, it was, uh, uh, we actually saw it all from uh, Hillside um, at our condo and uh, it was just spectacular. I had never heard of it before, but um, I just love the idea of putting all your worries or 
misfortunes or whatever. People, people who got divorced uh, brought their wedding dress and put it in the Zozobra to get rid of the bad <laughs> spirits from a bad marriage or whatever it might be. Um, and they just fill this thing with paper. You can, you can send in your worries online. It costs you a dollar. Uh, they put it in. Cost more if you want to put it in a particular part of the Zozobra. Uh, but uh, I, I th- just thought it was a wonderful tradition. And um, gosh, I hope it works. <laughs> it's a great idea. Maybe the airline industry should do their own, yeah. and they can burn up an old seven six seven or something. <laughs> yeah, or or at least an MD eighty or something yep. that never worked. <laughs> Well, Ben, after a major hurricane disruption in Florida and the Southeast last week, the Labor Day travel period was anything but restful for airlines and airports. The Transportation Security Administration screened 10% more travelers on Friday than the equivalent day last year, and that was 24% more than the start of the Labor Day weekend in 2019. We're well beyond comparisons to 2019. When you stop and think about it, it's really quite remarkable. We talk about labor shortages and aircraft delivery delays and pilot shortages and all, and yet sometimes we forget how much the airline industry has grown and is growing. That growth has come at high cost and a whole lot of effort, and the result is more people got to get on airplanes this past holiday weekend to go have fun. We saw part of that Herculean effort in a story from United, That airline recruited 460 ramp agents from its hub in Guam to relocate to its hub in Denver. We'll see how they adapt from the tropical island climate to the harsh Colorado winter. And a couple of noteworthy cases this week of just the opposite, contraction of air service. We've talked before about the Mexican president's pet project of a new airport in Mexico City. Well, the government just ordered a cut in landing slots from 52 an hour to 43 an hour beginning in November. That's at the main Mexico City airport. Surely that is intended to push air service to the remote airport the president is so passionate about. He has the Mexican military launching a commercial airline from the new airport, which is a converted military base. So, Scott, how do you say right amendment in Spanish? (laughs) Very good. I like it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and a new reduced flight cap is coming to Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam next year, which interestingly, JetBlue just started serving. You may recall that the Dutch government imposed a green flight cap on environmental grounds. Airlines challenged that in court and won on the basis that the government didn't follow proper procedures. Well, now the government has, and an appeals court has given the government permission to move forward. The exact start date hasn't been set. It still needs European Union approval. The cap will limit Schiphol to 452,500 flights per year. That's 10% lower than the current cap of 500,000 flights. The airport had actually planned to increase the cap to 540,000 flights. I'm sure the fight will continue, and it's hard to tell where it will end up, but it looks to be bad news for KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. Schiphol is a wonderful airport for connecting traffic, and this will make it a weaker hub 
since there will be presumably less feed coming in, fewer direct flights to some cities, and likely higher prices for travelers. And rather than helping the environment, it likely just means that traffic will connect elsewhere. Schiphol shrinks, but other hubs get bigger. This is going to increasingly be a challenge for airlines. The industry accounts for only about 4% of carbon emissions, but it is deposited at high altitude, and it is an easy target for achieving reductions. It's interesting to me that the Dutch government chose to limit the number of flights rather than ban older, higher polluting aircraft, for example, or imposing a carbon tax that could fund offsets. Flight caps don't mean new government taxes. They also don't address the amount of carbon emissions being generated. This is obviously going to be more of an issue in Europe than in the U.S. or Asia, at least in the near future. So robust travel and some reminders of robust problems ahead, Ben. What do you think of all this? Well, Scott, they say that all politics is local, and that's true here, too. I applaud the Dutch government for saying we want to do our part. But I wonder why they look at an industry that promotes so much economic activity for their country. Do they really want to reduce the number of tourists in the country and send people to Spain or France or the UK instead of Holland? Do they really want all the supporting industries that support the airlines to for those businesses to shrink? I like your idea of saying we're not going to let gas guzzlers come here or we're going to charge for some sort of carbon offset. But just to reduce the number of flights seems like a very, really silly approach. And like you said, is just going to move traffic to other hubs. Yeah, I think we've got to find a better way to address this and, and address this more globally. Um, you know, you're right. It's, it's good that they are taking the initiatives. Um, the, the Dutch government has environmental goals. Um, that's more than a lot of governments can say. And it's so good for them. Um, but uh, this is, I don't think, a very smart, you know, the, the swinging of the sledgehammer here um, may not be as effective as more surgical cuts or, or more careful things. Uh, and, you know, if you want to put the onus on airlines, have them move quicker at Schiphol to next generation planes that, ha- that reduce carbon emissions. And I think that, that would really do a lot while still promoting economic development. You know, both Airbus and Boeing have said publicly that the move to the most modern airplanes available today is the easiest thing that can be done to reduce carbon emissions. That's self-serving for them, of course, since they want to sell more planes. But they're right. If you look around the world at all the flights, only 20 or 30% are on the most modern planes. 
Right, and the math is simple. So, so they've reduced flights by 10%. Well, if they, if they had more flights on airplanes that had 20% less carbon emission, uh, then you could, you could achieve a higher goal than 10% if you force all the flights onto new airplanes. All right, another news item of note, American Airlines got hit with a $4 million fine for tarmac delays on 43 flights between 2018 and 2021. You might see this as some government cleanup work from the previous administration, which didn't do much in terms of enforcement on airline issues. Given the long time period covered here, it really is a small number of flights. Some of this also came during the pandemic when staffing at airports was a big challenge. But it is a big reminder that airlines have to have ways to get people off airplanes during big disruptions. Most of these waits were for more than three hours and the sitting occurred at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Not all of it, but a lot of it. That's America's largest hub where it should have plenty of resources. The tarmac delay rule gets a bad rap from some people in the industry, but I think it has been very effective at changing airline behavior for the better. Yes, airlines may be quicker to cancel ahead of storms. They also now have much better systems for monitoring flights and are more careful about overloading airports. People hate being stuck on planes for hours-long stretches, often with lousy conditions on board. So the rule has reduced a major pain point, and I say that's a good thing, Ben. While it has reduced pain for customers, I agree, but it also independently has created more cancellations. So you're not stuck on the ramp on an uncomfortable plane, but your likelihood of being canceled has been increased. So it's really a two-sided coin. That said, this rule has had a big effect in changes to the rule after a few years have made it better as well. So even though I hate to admit it, I think this is a pretty good rule that more often protects people, even though the industry has had to figure out how to not cancel as an alternative. Yeah, but it, it has forced a lot of change, and I, and I do think for the better. Another bit of news I found far more significant than the little attention it got. Delta opened the final phase of its $2.3 billion rebuilding of terminals at Los Angeles International Airport. They opened it 18 months ahead of schedule. Delta did some amazing stuff during the pandemic, accelerating constructions when terminals suddenly didn't have many people going through them, both in New York and LA. And Delta is now reaping the benefits. I love following the statistics on the market share fight at LAX, where you have five major airlines really slugging it out in one of the most competitive airports in the country. It's like a baseball pennant race to me. At LAX through July this year, Delta has been number one in market share with about 19% of all passengers. And that's really extraordinary because both American and United had well-established hubs there. American is now number two and United number three according to Los Angeles World Airports. 
Before the pandemic in 2019, American was number one with 19%, basically Delta's position today. 10 years ago in 2013, United was number one, American was number two, and Delta was number three with only 13% of the market. There's a lot more to it than just facilities, but you might note that American is still in the throes of its construction rebuilding. Delta is taking market share in New York and Los Angeles, the two largest markets in the country. And I think this is an industry development that doesn't get covered enough. I totally agree with you, Scott. And what's interesting to me is that Delta, really starting with Richard Anderson, is playing a very long game. You saw that when they bought the oil refinery years ago. You saw that when the pandemic hit and they started investing heavy in New York and L.A. while everyone else was just hoarding cash. And when you compare them to American and United, that's a kind of leadership you don't really see at those airlines. Now, United has tried to position itself as a long-term thinker by buying supersonic jets and electric planes and things. But when it comes down to it, Delta has been making the investments and is buoyed by the fact that they're better than anyone else in the industry at carrying business travelers. So if business travel is only 80% of what it used to be, Delta is losing less than American and United are losing. And that's a big deal, and I agree with you. It doesn't get covered enough, Scott. Yeah, and a big part of that investment was investing in reliability. Richard Anderson figured uh, running a dependable airline was what would be appealing to those business travelers. And and you you weren't going to take market share away unless you could provide better service. And so they invested a lot. And remember doing stories about how they they had uh, sophisticated software that would predict where spare planes were needed, and they would uh, they would move their spare plane fleet around their hubs. They they developed their own sensors to put on key parts of the airplane to measure where so they could replace it when it got to 80% of its life cycle and avoid cancellations or delays because of uh, parts breaking since they already had replaced it. They, they just did a lot of things to uh, really you know, provide more reliable service. And that has really mattered to people. And and I think it's a big part of the market share capture that they've had. So Ben, two other stories that caught my eye, and I'm sure got your attention as well. First, Don Gilbertson at the Wall Street Journal built a story on bare bones Allegiant Air, adding Johnny Walker Blue Label to its menu on some flights at $35 a shot. That's a very top shelf scotch, and it can go for $80 a shot in restaurants and nightclubs, according to Don. Allegiant also added premium tequila and vodka at $15 a shot. 
That's a lot when you consider tickets as low as $40 a flight. Don called it a sign of travelers' split-brain spending when it comes to vacation spending. Ben, I know this is a, a, a marketing uh, technique you used at Spirit, um, that people, people like low fares and fancy hotel rooms. Also, a couple of lawsuits popped up over hotel junk fees, attacking hotels for mandatory fees that aren't included in prices at the time of the reservation. This started with resort fees, but spread to all kinds of urban hotels with dubious utility for in the fee and no way to opt out. But I think airlines get lumped in with the junk fee idea. And certainly there are dubious airline fees, but most often they aren't mandatory. There may be some inconvenient way of getting out of something like online reservation fees. You might have to show up at the airport to avoid the fee. So fees and add-ons, Ben. As the father of unbundling, what do you think of Johnny Walker blue labels on flights? And what do you think of the hotel junk fee problem? Well, let me talk about junk fee first. I hate that term, Scott, because it really poisons the debate. Fees at airlines are largely a way for consumers to get better control of their price. You know, you've got this insurance company with the EMU saying only pay for what you need. And they use that as a very empowering logo. And that's what fees, most fees on airlines do. Take fewer bags, pay a lower price. Check in yourself, pay a lower price, right? Mm-hmm. As long as that is paired with great transparency, I think that's really good for consumers. Now, in the hotel space, maybe they aren't as transparent or maybe there's no way to get out of the fees. So I'm not saying that there aren't fee issues, even at airlines, that should be addressed, but to group every fee as a junk fee, I think is dangerous and ultimately will hurt consumers. Now, as you get to Johnny Walker on flights, I love that idea. And if a legion can get $25 a shot, go for it. They have to make sure they control the leakage on that as well. <laughs> yeah. I will say something that I think is funny too, Scott. You know, I walk now with a walker, and I've <laughs> named my walker Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say to my wife, pull Johnny over here, please. <laughs> well, put a blue label on him, and the price just went up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, Airlines Confidential relies on its sponsors who make this podcast possible. We want to thank our sponsor, Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. 
Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Okay, Ben, in this week's mailbag, JP from Florida raises a question of whether flight attendants should have more rigorous annual training and currency checks. Hello, Ben and Scott. I was listening to another podcast, and they referenced the United in-flight announcement, which is catchy but deserves discussion. While safety is our priority, service is our passion, is said on every flight. It is true the airlines require new hire flight attendants to complete an intense three- to six-week training at the start of their career, but that intense training isn't required each year. U.S.-based flight attendants attend a one- to two-day training annually, referred to as recurrent. Pilots must attend and engage in simulator training each year, where different scenarios are expected to be mastered, and if the mastery is not achieved, they fail their annual training. They also must pass check rides, supervise flights, over the course of their careers. Flight attendants also attend classroom training and demonstrate opening doors and normal and emergency modes on cabin mock-ups. They also must demonstrate proper use of defibrillators and discuss cabin scenarios. Some take a written test while others do not. Pilots also must retire at age 65. There isn't a mandatory retirement age for flight attendants. Pilots must also pass an FAA medical each year, and the frequency changes as pilots advance in age. U.S.-based flight attendants do not. Some flight attendants have been flying 50 years and haven't had to jump in the pool since the 1970s to demonstrate water rescue capabilities. Given flight attendants are always reminding us of their role as safety professionals, shouldn't they be subject to similar standards? Ah, well, JP... I think this is uh, quite the controversial topic, um, and I hope, I'm sure, we'll hear from flight attendants uh, who listen as well. Ben, I'm no expert on this, but I do think there's a lot of evidence that flight attendants have performed extremely well in emergency evacuations we've seen in accidents over the past 10 years or so. Crashes such as runway overruns and onboard fire situations have been very survivable. That's because of a combination of better materials and design of airplanes, as well as skilled professionals orchestrating evacuations when danger could cause passengers to panic or freeze. Pilots should have far more rigorous training and evaluation. They have more responsibility, 
And by the way, their pay reflects that. So I don't think you can equate pilots and flight attendants. And I don't think there's much evidence that flight attendants aren't up to the safety responsibilities they have to do. What do you think? I agree with you, Scott. Both flight attendants and pilots work in the same plane, but their jobs are very different. And the result of failure in their jobs is very different, too. I think flight attendants in the U.S. generally do a great job, and I don't think they need more training around issues that they are actually quite well trained on. The FAA manages that, and the FAA tells airlines how much training pilots and flight attendants have to do for safety, and I think they've reached a fairly good position for both roles. Pilots and flight attendants do good jobs in the U.S., but they're different jobs. So trying to say just because they work in the same plane, you might want to equate them, that's not right either. And, and Ben, let me just add, I think the United announcement, like a lot of airlines, um, is important for passengers to hear that flight attendants aren't just there to serve drinks. They're, they do have a, a very important safety role. And, and it all goes into uh, the notion of obeying orders from flight attendants and not having confrontations and getting away from the idea that passengers think they are just there to uh, put bags in the overhead bin and uh, and cater to their uh, snack and, and drink orders like a waitress in a restaurant. I think that's right, Scott. And you can take the other side of that coin, too. There have been some airlines over time that have gone the other way and said, we don't have to do much customer service because we're only here for your safety. Mm. So don't ask me to help you with your bag or to bring you a drink. Mm. And I think the United announcement is good. It really nicely balances the two very strong role that flight attendants have Mm -hmm. to keep the flight safe and provide good service. Well, Scott, We've had a couple of questions lately about mechanics, too. Thomas from Lisbon, Ohio, sends this. Would love to hear an episode explaining aircraft maintenance, why the mechanics are kind of like the black sheep, why negotiations take so long between company and unions for all work groups. Scott, this is a fascinating question, I think. I don't think mechanics are black sheep. They're extremely important. And if they don't sign off on an aircraft, it doesn't fly. We'll get more experts on as guests who are experienced in the world of mechanics. In terms of why negotiations take so long, That's because of how the Railway Labor Act is designed. It's different in aviation, they say, 
than Hollywood writers and actors. The Railway Labor Act makes it very difficult to ever get to a strike because the country doesn't want the disruption and economic impact of a rail or airline shutdown. So it takes years and years to get to the point of where a labor group could legally strike. And without the deadline pressure, it takes longer for management to offer their absolute best deal and longer for labor to be willing to take something less than everything they want. It's a process that has worked very well for the industry, but does take a long time. Yeah, it really does. And I do think, Ben, some changes need to be made in the Railway Labor Act. Workers end up going years without a raise. They often get back pay, and they often are well paid. But the drawn-out negotiations leave labor feeling that they have very little leverage because there is very little leverage. And so we see labor playing the safety card, which unnecessarily alarms travelers just to get more leverage or publicly trashing their own airline to pressure management into better deals. Customers get caught up in the slowdowns and the slogans, and it's confusing and frustrating for travelers. So Andy from Chicago responded to comments I made about the possibility someday of single pilot cockpits augmented with AI-driven robot first officers. Andy says, hello, gentlemen. I'm on the younger end of the pilot spectrum, being in my late 20s and a Boeing 737 first officer at a large U.S. legacy airline. The threat of single pilot autonomous operations are a major threat to not only my career, but tens of thousands of other pilots who still have many years of flying service left under their belts. There is no doubt the technology is evolving and it will be coming to our industry in the years ahead. I feel the only defense to protect safety in our careers comes down to regulatory bodies, insurance companies, and airline unions. Changing the status quo will be a major uphill battle to get through regulatory bodies like Congress and the FAA, who are historically skeptical in any way to ease regulations on aviation. He offers the example of the 1,500-hour rule. Then we have the insurance companies. Pilots are an expensive work group, no doubt. However, will the actuaries of insurance companies determine it's more risky and thus more expensive to reduce the number of crew on board versus the two-pilot crew standard that has operated millions of flights with zero fatal accidents in over 15 years. Lastly, and probably most strongly, are the airline unions. The Railway Labor Act, which we were just talking about, limits the power of these unions. However, in the current times, they have the upper hand and are able to negotiate language to protect jobs. American United and Delta all put in strong contractual language in their latest labor agreements that requires two pilots on the flight deck to operate their flights. Once these agreements are in the contract, it's hard to see them being given up by pilots' unions. At the end of the day, it's about protecting safety that's been proven in the industry and protecting a highly respected, high-paying quality career. We have tens of thousands of young people who would love to become pilots and are fascinated with aviation. We need to invest in helping with training costs 
and not scare away applicants with the idea that this career might not be around in 10 or 20 years. Well, Ben, I agree with Andy that it is a very difficult paradigm to change, but I disagree that it's a threat to his career. If anything, single pilot captain would no doubt be paid more than a current captain because pilots will surely capture part of the cost savings. I think there are going to be plenty of piloting jobs in the future. Air travel is going to become even more prevalent in our lives. Even air taxis will need pilots. Long term, robot pilots will enable more flying, so there will be plenty of seats for human pilots. We just may not have the shortages that we see today. I do think that technology can improve even more, and I do think it's coming. I saw a story this week about pilotless fighter jets flying in formation with a human-piloted jet. We land spacecraft on planets without pilots. Eventually, someday, we probably can fly commercial airplanes without pilots. I think there will always be at least one in the cockpit, but we moved from three pilots in the cockpit of commercial airliners down to two, and I think there will come a day when that second pilot is seen as redundant. And even with that, Andy, I think it's going to be a terrific career, and certainly there will be a need for more and more pilots all the time. Well, I think Andy is a great example of the smart people we have flying airplanes in the U.S. It's great that he's thinking not only about his next flight and what hotel he'll be in, but about the future of his career. And I agree that the industry is always going to need people like him as pilots. That said, I think that the industry should move forward to figuring out what technology can do. You know, Scott, in many ways, automating an airplane should be easier than a car. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is we know where every commercial airplane is. We know where they're going. We know what flight plan they're on. And none of that happens when you put a car on a freeway. So everyone, I think, can think about a world where they call an Uber and a driverless car comes and picks them up, or someday when they don't have to be physically driving but can ride in a car. That's a harder problem to solve, I think, than airlines. So I think we should move forward, understand what can be done, and we shouldn't choose what to do or not because we can't do something, but because we decide it's the right thing to do. And that could be keeping two people in the cockpit or going down to one. Absolutely. Well said, Ben. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Airlines Confidential. Have a great week, everyone. See you next week on Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding.
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.